Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Dennis Miller. Dennis is a founder and chairman of DCM Associates Incorporated. He is a nationally recognized strategic leadership coach, author, motivational speaker, retreat facilitator, and executive search consultant with over 35 years of experience leading, connecting with, and inspiring organizations in the nonprofit and medical industries. Dennis spent over 25 years as a healthcare executive, having served as the president and CEO of Somerset Medical Center and Healthcare Foundation, and executive vice president, chief operating officer of Holy Name Hospital. He's received numerous rewards as a highly respected healthcare executive and served as a member of the Board of Trustees for the New Jersey Council of Teaching Hospitals, chaired the Board of Trustees for the Center of Healthcare in Princeton, and served on numerous other nonprofit boards. Denner is the author of four books on nonprofit organization success, and his most recent book, Mopping Floors to CEO, From Hopelessness and Failure to Happiness and Success. In it, he shares how anyone can overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles, making it to the top, and living a happy and fulfilling life. We're excited to have Dennis with us today to share his story of resiliency and a journey from hopelessness to CEO. Dennis, welcome to the show. Dr. Tell, I'm happy to be here. It's nice to have you, really is. You know, Dennis, your book is described uh, by some that have read it and and those that have gone over as a how-to for turning one's fragile mental status due to early trauma into a solid footing of strong mental health and stable family and a professional life. And your book's title includes From Hopelessness and Failure. Would you start us out in the show today by sharing with us the start in your life and the challenges you experienced? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I kind of, you know, grew up, I was born in 1950, grew up in the 50s, and parents, uh, older brother, younger brother, it's just came along later in life. And I don't think I, you know, don't think you realize the time, but, you know, my dad was a um, very talented man, but a very emotionally abusive, physically abusive, but he really, I learned later in life that he had a severe personality disorder, um, gender identity issues, I believe, prone to anger. And so it was very challenging to, to say the least here. Very strict. I remember my mother would say, you know, boys, it's five o'clock. Your father's coming home. He wants you to get out of the backyard. doesn't want you playing on the grass. He'd rather the grass look good than what you're playing in the street, which is exactly the opposite most feminine. You know, my mother was a good mom, a good person, but she was overwhelmed with uh, mm. her own depression, withdrawal, and abuse. I played sports. I love sports. All the way up through high school, you know, varsity football play was my dream. I loved playing football. I was the lead in the high school play. I was the MC of the variety show. I was kind of a class clown, social butterfly. But then, you know, it came time to graduate from high school. I realized academically I was ranked near the bottom of my class and didn't get into any college. And it was very depressing, demoralizing, and just reinforced my father's feeling that you're a failure. You're a failure. And constantly getting the rejection out of the system. My father was like, just don't waste my time with this kid. So that's kind of how I grew up without realizing it, if that makes sense. I wasn't self-aware that I was going through trauma. I wasn't aware that I was abused. I wasn't aware that I had suffered depression. Uh, I look back and can see that my my humor and self-deprecating humor in high school was my way of coping with it. And clearly, you know, no back. I mean, I had problems uh, 
in grammar school sort of shutting up, I, I had certainly had troubles at grammar school behavior. But that's a little, that's a little bit kind of the, 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 the nutshell of kind of how I could grow. It's interesting. You said you're going through these really difficult times with a father that, you know, could be emotionally and physically abusive and, and just dealt with his own, maybe some of his own struggles and maybe with the personality disorder and some other things, but angry for sure. And mom that while loving and good also felt maybe just overwhelmed and kind of unable to do much more than just trying to protect everybody from a dad that was coming home. And that must've been really challenging. And yet what you're talking about is you were still thriving in some ways. You're on the football team, the lead in the play, you know, you found some ways to cope through humor. That's one of our highest defense mechanisms. Humor is our highest defense mechanisms. So you found ways to be in the class clown to somehow kind of maybe kind of hold down and kind of tamp down and manage some of the things in life that outside of school were pretty challenging successful nonetheless, but the grades were really hard. And maybe even early on in your elementary years, recognizing some interactions with teachers might've said, Hey, there were some things going on in this boy, but he was just told to be quiet and sit down. Not, not necessarily really addressed or understood. No, a couple of things. I was, you know, we moved when I was seven. So I moved from a city to the suburbs and I was, you know, public school, Catholic school. And I repeated fifth grade and it wasn't just because my grades were bored. I, I was told, you know, I wasn't, quote, emotionally mature. And I was a young kid. I do remember in seventh grade, my teacher meeting with the religious principal, and they made me carry my desk downstairs and put it in a supply closet. And they told me to teach myself smart oh, hours. Yes. And I remember, I'll never forget it. And the nun put the light out in the supply closet. And it was, you know, back when you had those, you know, made copies and all that stuff that smelled. I forget what it was called and all that, you know. Yeah. I remember when... I'm sitting in my desk in a supply closet at, at Catholic grammar school and teacher didn't want me in class. And the principal was annoyed with me. And, and remember her assistant came in and took the light on to probably get some Xerox paper, whatever she was getting. And she sees this little skinny, believe it or not, little Irish kid with, you know, freckles there going like, Oh my God. And she just left. And then I think she left with the light on and I got smacked for that. So it was the last day in that school. When I went to, public school for grammar school, you know, same thing again, my, my, one of my teachers, you know, put my desk next to hers. I think my geography teacher should put my desk like next to her for the whole class. But my eighth grade teacher named Jerry Brown, Gerald Brown, he came to my house one day. And I, I always wish I could have thanked him, but I know he came to my house to figure out what could be possibly going on with this kid. Yeah. Now, this was around the time of the 1964 World's Fair, so I wasn't allowed in the class trip to go to the World's Fair. I wasn't like a fighter, so it wasn't like I was beating kids up, but I'm sure I could just couldn't sit still and stay shut. So I was probably annoying everybody. It was like constantly. And there was no, you know, no psychological counselors. So anyway, so I came to my home and I don't, there was never any follow-up for me. And I'm sure he met my parents and figured out what to do with the kid. But those are the challenges I kind of had kind of growing up. Until you know, years later, I look back and realize, you know, it's kind of a very lonely life, had no real connections, always felt like an orphan without being an orphan. We had a built-in pool in the backyard, so it was looking good, like I had no place to go. But yeah, it was a very difficult life. My father was very materialistic. I mean, literally, if you were watching TV in the family room and you wanted something to drink, you had to drink it in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to put a pillow behind your neck, and watch TV lying down. You had to go leave the family room and go to your bed if you wanted to lie down. You had to sit up straight. It was very weird. Um, yeah, it was really rigid. To say the least. 
to say that. Anyway, that's a little bit of my, a little bit of the background. As you share this, Dennis, you know, oftentimes school can be the safest place for some kids when their home life is so challenging. Sometimes we, we had a guy in the show recently, school was the only place he got to eat. He had five meals a, a week. That was it. On the weekends, he didn't have any food or electricity. And so you're talking about how school ideally could have been a safe place where you could have been understood or known, but not only were things happening at home, but school was in many ways continued to the abuse there with humiliation, lack of understanding, putting you in a, in a, in a closet in the dark. And, and these are, these are equally abusive things as well. You know, there's a, an assessment called the adverse childhood experiences. They call it the ACEs. And uh, these are adverse childhood experiences that a child goes through that include some of the things you you talked about, the discord in the home, abuse in the family, school-related things. And these things really impact us. But when we're little kids, we don't know what we're going through. This is just our normal. It's just what we know. And what you're saying that I think is so important, I want our listeners to get this, is that we take away a message about ourselves, either one that we form for ourselves or one that people tell us. And what you're saying is, I learned very quickly from my, either my dad telling me or maybe the way that I was treated that there's something about me that's either a failure or just not good enough. Oh, a couple of things. A, a, I felt like a complete failure without being conscious of it. Yeah. I certainly felt that was not good enough. Yeah. I never forget this, Dr. Taylor. I remember, I don't know how old I was. Could have been 10 years old, 12 years old. I don't remember something like that. Someone saying they were going away on vacation with their parents. And I remember saying to him, I'm sorry to hear that. Mm. And in my experience, going on vacation with my parents oh, yeah. was a trauma. Was Absolutely. Oh. It was, my father once took us all to Washington, D.C., right, in a car trip. Yeah. Got to Washington. You know, most hotels want you to have a committed two-night stay. Because of that, he turned around and went all the way back to New Jersey and stopped about a few miles from our home and went back the next day. It just was always like this. It was just horrible. Yeah. I do remember this, though. In spite of all that negativity, mm -hmm. when I was going to go to high school, and this says a lot about me, but I remember saying to myself, I want to go to Harvard or West Point. I want to get really educated. I never forget that. And so even though I was in a public school, I wanted to go to a private Catholic high school. And I did. And I got into a school and, you know, college prep school. And I, I remember this. It was like there was the A group, B, yeah. C, D. And the A's were like the real smart kids. And these were the kids that told the school that, you know, they'll pay the tuition and they were Catholic, something like that. And I was laughed because I was in the D group, but two people became phenomenally successful in my group. One, the president of my company, one, an almost billionaire real estate developer. And we always laughed that the people in the A group were working with people <laughs> like us. Right. But it says something to me that I really think about that. I want to go to Harvard or West Point. West Point, I think, for the discipline. Mm -hmm. And then, unfortunately, though, after a year of that, I didn't have any support. This was too tough. No support. And academically, it was challenging for me, clearly. You know, I went to public school, you know, that's, and, but I used that, you know, football was my savior. That was my thing that made me feel good about myself. Watching football player lead, you know, that was, that was the stuff. But that was, that was my early stage of my life. How does one 
wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I want to get a higher education. Given all that you're going through, being told that you're a failure, being punished as though and communicated to that, you know, you're not going to amount to anything here. You're in the basement in a, in a, in a closet. How does one go from that indoctrination and that treatment to, you know what? I think I want to go to a higher college, higher education. Your grades weren't all that good. You said, how does one wake, wake up one day and just kind of think that thought? Yeah, well, a couple of things. So you got to skip a couple of years to when I was 24. I had been thrown out of my house at 20 years old. I, I was so distraught and despondent and depressed and anxious and just couldn't cope with literally being alive. Hmm. That I self-admitted myself to a private psychiatric hospital, left there for four or six weeks, whatever. Priest came to visit me from the Paris and make a long story short. And one day I knocked on his door out of desperation. I cried my, my butt out. And yeah. so that began a kind of a healing process. And he got me into a day hospital program. So I was 21 years old, six or nine months, whatever. So I'm in a day program that really, really was the beginning of rebuilding my life. I really felt support. I felt cared for everything mm -hmm. that was intended to do, it did. I began to like myself. I became a voracious reader. Went to the library. This is all pre-Kindle, you know. Went to the library and bought them four or five books at a time, devoured it, just loved that stuff. So here I'm 24 years old, thrown out the house, living in the YMCA, get a room in a boarding house. Won't go to my fifth high school reunion because I was just too embarrassed. Like, Dennis, was that you cleaning the urinals? Like, you know, here I, you know. And until I, I had somewhat of a divine intervention, how I describe it was this was like, you know, I dreamed about being an author and like I thought I was going to be like Leo Toysaw, the next author of War and Peace or something. I thought it was really something i like and that I dream remember the conversation with myself was like dennis you gotta get an education or you're not gonna get anywhere mm -hmm. and i really i wanted to be those kids that had that went to college the kids at the parking decals and the you know volkswagen buddy the buses and went to the football games and college life i had none of that mm -hmm. and i never forget that i ended up saying okay so how am I going to get an education, smart ass? I said, you got to write a letter. So I wrote a letter to every college president of all the state and public schools in New Jersey telling my story. And I get into a mall, and I chose Rutgers, and I graduated top of my class, Phi Beta Kappa. Outstanding. That was beginning to, and for whatever reason, just the, the not easy. It wasn't easy for me to go to be in biology, and it wasn't easy for me to be eventually in physics and calculus which I got an A in, but that between the day hospital program, the support I had from Father Gantley, the priest for, for a long time, yeah, my determination to make something my life, never giving up on that, that was a big piece of transformation. That's what really stands out to me. You know, in order for change to happen the way that you made it happen, it wasn't going to be in your family. That That environment was not anything other than trauma and keeping you small and keeping you injured. But somewhere along the way, what you're describing, Dennis, is that your vision of yourself, somehow you never lost. And I know that that takes a certain grit. You know, we talk about grit or determination, perseverance. Those are words that we kind of toss around, but you're living that somehow. And you never lost a sense of hope in yourself. There was something that always had a larger vision. How did you keep that along the way? Yeah, it's, yeah no, it's, it's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer, but I do remember this. I remember in between the day hospital program and 
you know, and being 24 living, you know, in, in the YMCA, yeah. you know, I had jobs like, you know, in an excavating grading company, I had jobs like power washing homes, I had these jobs and outside in the wintertime, freezing your butt off, making yeah. probably $4 an hour, whatever. But I never gave up that I wanted the picket fence. I never gave up that I wanted the wife. I just never, I never gave up. And that is, I don't know where that comes from, to be honest with you, but I just never gave up that I wanted that. I wanted a better, I never gave that up. And you never, yeah, you kept that vision and you kept moving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look back at all the lessons I've done, but which will maybe come up later, but I never, yeah, I just, it, it is remarkable even to me. I just never gave up. In other words, I never gave up hope. I never yeah. lost hope. That's true. I yeah. never, now I lost hope going into the hospital, but I never lost hope after that. Even interesting, here I am, 24 years old, yeah, living in a YMCA. And actually, it was a part of me that was happy because I felt, you know what? I separated from the house. I couldn't, part of my issue was a separation. I couldn't separate. I I didn't want to be there at the home, but I didn't want to be living by myself someplace and alone. So I just look, put it up here. But the fact that I went to the YMCA, I remember being outside one day and saying, okay, it's like, this is the, it's just like the break from prison. This is the prison, this is yes. the break I need. And I took it from there. You know, it's so hard to separate, you know, even when things are abusive, people would say, well, boy, it must have been great when you got out. It must have felt like on the one hand, yes, you're standing outside going, yeah, I'm free. And it's got to feel like a prison break in some ways. At the other side, there's always this emotional longing for things to be better within our home. And, and that separation is a loss because we have to accept that I'm not going to get what I need most relationally to be loved in the way that I I, I wish I could by those that you know, gave birth and, and, and raised me. But what you are saying here is one, I never lost hope, never lost vision. And I kept moving. And then something happened. You talked about your healing process starting when somehow you had the smarts or the idea or good fortune to say, you know what, I need to check myself into something. And you began to be surrounded by people that really started to understand you and work to understand you and come into relationship with you in healthy ways that others in life, in your family, or in school, or along the way should have, and they're in the positions to have, but didn't, and failed you that way. You found some people, and you plugged yourself into things, with Father Gantley being one of them, people who began to love on you and allowed you to feel secure, safe, understood, allowed you probably to process a lot of things, and probably helped strengthen the vision that you never gave up on, on yourself. Yeah, I mean, Father Gantley was a, I mean, I, I dedicated the book to him. Nice. Amazing man. It was never about religion. It was, he was like a father to me, just very hand-holding, comforting yeah. guy, always gave me hope here. But I think there's a couple of lessons that I learned through this process. One was this. I realized that I could go through life blaming my parents and blaming my father mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And I can blame my teachers and how in the world could you take a kid and put him in a closet and close the door on him? I mean, I look back and so say, like, now you've been to school, you've been arrested. But I understood that I had to take responsibility for myself. Mm -hmm. Blaming other people, nope, I had to take sort of, I just had to take really responsibility for myself. And 
and go go forward in a more positive manner. So I can't blame my dad. I got to stop being like my dad. Okay. Number two, I I think everybody I I envision the future, and I I had somewhat of a plan to get there. And you know, going back to school, and at the time I thought I'd be a physical therapist, and then I changed and got into health administration, and I envisioned myself being certainly that was not better medical. But I envisioned myself maybe running a community health center, and I was very persistent and following through on that. I know that I was determined to succeed. I mean, I just was determined to be successful. And so I just knew that, you know, I knew I had to work harder than anybody else if I was going to move from the the bucket, clean the bucket at the hotel, at the corner. I had to outwork people here. One of the things that was most difficult for me early on was I hid from everybody that I was seeking mental health services. Mm-hmm. I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. Though on one part of me knew that I needed it. And I I even remember, you know, being a young kid saying to myself, I know this is investing myself where people invest in the stock market. I'm going to invest myself. I, I, I knew that, but still I would be, I'd be petrified. You know, here I am running a hospital and I'd be petrified that someone knew that I was in my animal's office. I'd be petrified that you knew yeah. was anything that was petrified to me. And and it takes strength. And I I understood all that. And it should not be thinking about yourself in a negative manner, but in a positive manner, getting help. But still, that's kind of how I thought about it. Uh, I just did. I just was embarrassed to it. I remember one day, there was a gentleman who became my psychoanalyst for probably 10 years. And here I am in my 50s. And one day he said to me, Dad, I said, you know what? He says, it's okay to need me. Mm-hmm. And it hit me. And I knew what he meant. He goes, it's okay. I said, it's okay. He goes, Dennis, it's okay. And it was like a relief where I just was like, I, here I am, perceived myself as an adult man, president of a major medical center. Mm-hmm. And yet, as a feeling like a child that I need help and so i even to this day you know recommend people go for therapy but i remember one other situation where i had i used to you know go on vacation like most people go on vacation and i get to the beach or something and i'd be depressed i'm like what the freak i'm in aruba right and i never forget same thing i called the therapist and he said to me dennis he goes listen he says children that that don't have a relation with their parents, identify with them. He said, that's how they get to feel close and they identify with them because you identify with your mother. She's not going to be hurt if you're happy. And I'm saying, she's not. She goes, no, you're you're not going to hurt your mother if you're being happy. Like, it's okay to let her go. And I remember like running on the beach saying, hey, I can be happy. It's okay. Yes. And yes. so I had all those, you know, kind of stuff there. But the, there's other issues, but one that I just bring up and I'll stop for, but is this one. I had to learn to truly love myself. Yeah. I had been so beaten up by my dad, not my mom, but my dad and teachers in school and, you know, made it to feel like a failure, which I was in their eyes, terrible. 
I had to learn to I had to learn to love myself so I can love other people. And that became seriously the key to my health and happiness. That was it. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Whether you're a longtime or first-time listener to Behavioral Health Today, you're probably familiar with Triad, the company that brings you this podcast. But you may not know that Triad also hosts a community for current and aspiring behavioral and mental health professionals, featuring trending content and education and career resources, all for free. If you are a behavioral or mental health professional, or you're studying to become one, join more than 80,000 people on Triad by claiming your free professional account today. Visit us at hellotriad.com slash bht. That's hellotriad.com slash bht. And join the Triad community today. You know, Dennis, I there's there's so many things there you said from the lessons you learned, you know, not to blame oneself and just be the victim and give into this idea that I'm only going to be as good as the environment that I grew up in or what people said about me. That's limiting. You never let yourself look at that. Instead, what you decided to do is to hold a vision for yourself and take some responsibility and keep moving. That's one. The other one was you vision cast very clearly about how you saw yourself, what you want. I want a wife, I want a family. I want an education, these things that you put into place, those are key lessons that I think are are really important takeaways. And then you talked about something else too, I think that's really, really important, whether it's Father Gantley or maybe, you know, the analyst you're talking about, there are stigmas and there and there, there are stereotypes around mental health. And and yet what we get to do in, in, in therapy is we get to make the unconscious conscious. We get to look at why do I do what I do? Why do I think the thoughts that I think? What What role did my environment have in shaping who I am. But, you know, and some say, well, we're the collective of all of, of all of our past experiences, but we don't have to be only as good as the things that happened to us. Oftentimes there's a self that's trapped in those that when we free ourselves of that identity that was never ours to begin with, and our true identity has a chance to emerge through the things that you sought. You sought your own healthcare, mental healthcare, which I so admire. And what you did there is you're unlocking this sense of who am I really? You allowed some healthy people to come into your life, including your analyst for a handful of years. And what we get to have there are healthy mirrors. We oftentimes refer to them as corrective emotional experiences, people that can truly see us, people who are healthy in ways that are up, maybe those in our upbringing, teachers, administrators, family, parents, weren't healthy, couldn't provide healthy mirrors. In fact, they kind of mirrored to us like an image of a funhouse mirror where it's all distorted. But we're dependent upon that mirroring growing up thinking, maybe that, maybe that is who I am. Maybe I'm a failure. But somehow you never lost hope of that, which I think is a wonderful example of maintaining hope in the most dire circumstances. And that's what you were allowed to do. You, you, you didn't give up in that. And doing so, this led you into some really significant positions. CEO, of a New Jersey hospital, you transformed it from a from a failing enterprise into this flourishing institution. Tell us what tell us a little bit about your 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 professional path after you worked through all of these things. Yeah, by the way, I just want to I do remember once I one of the nuns at the Catholic hospital I was working at said to me, yeah. You don't look right today. And I opened up to her and said, Well, my psychiatrist, who was my therapist, so she, she's on maternity leave, and and I realized. That was not a good thing I said there. She was like, you know, that was like, that was a bad thing. That was like, oh, just Dennis got issues. That was not a good thing, I realized. So I'll never say that again. 
you know, it takes a lot of strength to, to be honest with ourselves and your your degree of, of of transparency on this show and your willingness to be open and honest, I know, is you're providing people at, that listen to this something that you needed very early on. They may never meet you, but they're going to listen to your voice and say, hey, wait a minute. This guy has some aspects of my story and he's giving me some takeaways here that allow me maybe to navigate things in my life in ways that I didn't even know that I might be able to navigate. So the idea that, you know, someone's looking down upon us or that we would naturally, you know, worry about a stigma or a stereotype about mental health, it's freeing. It allows us to discover who we are really intended to be and for that potential and all those gifts, skills, those abilities to be fully understood and then manifest in one's life and really buffed out. So several things can happen. One, people around us can benefit from the from what you bring to life. And then secondly, we get to be fulfilled from those qualities that are within us being fully experienced and brought into our lives in a very contributory way. So I, I, I admire you holding up. Yeah, I went to seek mental health. We look at our financial health. We go to a, a financial plan and we go to a doc for our physical health. Why the heck are we not going for a mental health and have those three legs of the stool really solid? And that's what you're doing. So all of that allowed you to come into this professional life. Transition us into that. Yeah, no, I, so I, when I went back to school and thought about a career initially, I thought about being a physical therapist because I was back then, not only athletically inclined, I was athletically looking, you know, things have changed (laughs) over the past 50 years, okay? And I did it for six months and I realized it's a good job, but it wasn't for me. I didn't see myself as a physical therapist. I wasn't sure where I was going to take it. I wasn't an entrepreneur. Went to the career counseling office at Rutgers and you know, took the Myers-Briggs. You like eat flowers, yeah. pick flowers, look at flowers. And so healthcare was something that, I don't know what the word weird experience, but I remember being 16 year old, working at Howard Johnson on the New Jersey Turnpike. And I forget a father came up with his son that tried to buy him like an ice cream cone. He couldn't afford it. And I just was like, oh my God, what people, you know? So I just, I wanted to get involved in healthcare. I never thought for life me medical centers. But I can all the details and excitement of kind of getting into Columbia University School of Public Health. Got a couple of jobs. I, I knew when I was 34 that I didn't want to be in a CPA firm. I didn't want to be that kind of thing. I wanted to run, wanted to run a hospital. And I got a job as a CFO. And before you know it, running a you know, Catholic medical center. Spent seven years on a publicly held consulting firm, running that, building it up successfully. Missed that, got into the hospital again. I think it was just that for me, healthcare was not a widget. Right. You know, I look back, I mean, hospital worlds are big businesses, you know. You don't always see the impact like you do when you're working for Make-A-Wish. But I saw something matched up with my values. And I think matching my values. So healthcare was a big deal. I had no idea... So again, I was 34 that I said I wanted to be a CEO. And then, you know, when I was 49 years old and became the CEO, it was one of the most exciting moments of my life for the board chair and the vice chair to walk into my office and say, good morning, Mr. President, because I just spoke to the board and they just wanted me to be a president. It was beyond, beyond How amazing. How cool is that? That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, it, it was like getting into Columbia. It was like, I couldn't believe I got to Columbia University. It was like, <laughs> so good. This is a true story. So I got this letter from Columbia. And I never forget, it was like thick. Yeah. And I was home by myself. I said, it's thick. And I'm like, 
it's thick. I said, they don't have thick. It's always like, dear right. Dennis, why did you apply to us? Why don't <laughs> You know, what, what were you go, thinking? So, go away, go away, go away. Yeah. And I've got to open up that letter. We want to congratulate you. Nice. So I chose the passion and I was um, really good at it. I was very good at obviously analyzing situations, you know, the, the marketplace, the business. But something that I did and all intuitively, and I, I don't know if I get this, if I can tell you this. So I just was a really good people person. I really yeah, you are. did it. As a CEO, I didn't think of myself as being above my boots. Yeah. And so, I mean, I didn't walk into the cafeteria with my posse and sit down. I would ask people if I might have and sat down with them. You know, the people that came to my office that emptied out the waste packet, they were my friends and colleagues because I cleaned that waste packet. You bet. But I never forget this when I took over the hospital and I had to make changes. I didn't have any idea what shape the hospital was. It's not good. Besides financially in bad shape, patient satisfaction was in bad shape. I bought in the firm ninth percentile from the bottom. Eventually mm. got the top one percent in the United States. But I remember my assistant say to me, her name was Mal Hapuza, said, Dennis, she goes, I know you got a harder goal to be scared to be using other people. I said, why? She goes, Dennis, she said to me, Dennis, nobody here has ever changed anything in 100 years. Mm. And January of 2000, when I became president, it was the 100th anniversary. That was the year. So I said, what do I do? I said, matter if I don't make changes, this place is going to go out of business. like 2,500 employees. Mm. She goes, I don't know, talk to the employees. So somehow I came up with the idea that to have dialogue with the president. It wasn't lunch or breakfast because I don't think we could afford it. It was dialogue with the president. And I had HR by 20 employees at the time without management. And I listened to what they had to say. I was aghast at what they had to say about how they were treated and mm. made the change. And I think people knew that I cared about them. And I think at the end of the day, that what that's what matters and how we became a good leader. People knew I cared. Isn't it interesting that the very thing you listened for during those talks, the very takeaway that you were probably most primed to hear was the importance of relationships with one another and how when those don't work, things professionally as an institution, medical center in this case, it's going to tank. Same thing in a family. It's only as good as the relationships are healthy. And what you're saying is the place you started was in a humble way, relating to people that in, in a way that they had worth. Those that are tossing out the baskets to those that are probably saving lives, you related to them as they were as valuable as each other. It, it, I mean, just the answer is yes. I forget what I was going to say, but it was just what I was referring. What I was referring to there was just the very thing that you didn't get growing up. You were able to give others, and that was respect, honor. You saw them as a value, and when we do that, there's something in people that kind of reaches their highest potential. And it sounds like that's what's part of what turned this facility around. Yeah, well, for me, I realized that I will never treat anybody the way my father treated me. Yeah, I, I will only treat people the way I want to be. It became the golden rule, but seriously. Yes. And I understood that. And, and I'll never forget, I, the joke is when I wrote my first book, and I always tell people, if Mrs. Fritz, my seventh grade English teacher, knew I wrote two sentences together, she'd have a heart attack. If she knew I wrote five, five books and about to finish my sixth, I don't know why she'd have a party maybe in the cemetery, but 
The first book I wrote came out in 2007. It's called The Guide to Achieving New Heights, The Four Pillars of Successful Nonprofit Leadership. Mm-hmm. And the first chapter was relationship building. And I started yeah. off about a lot of people, they may think this is Pukak or you know, emotionally. Yeah. But I'm amazed, Dr. Taylor, the people I've seen in my business and career that don't treat people well. Yes. And that they don't get it. And and so, you know, in the business we're in search today, we look for people that are going to fit in. But it is to me, the big thing for success is those that treat people well will do well. I, and I, I couldn't that's, agree that's more. It's so important. It's so important. I can't I can't think it's nothing else that's more important to me than how you treat people. Yeah. You know, they're, 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 if we were to just distill it down, I think maybe into some basic things, there's a business model and there's a relationship model. And a lot of times people in business think, well, we got to focus on the bottom line. We got to focus on these things and relationships will just kind of take care of themselves. And, and it never works. If we put the relationship model first and do what you're describing, and then we build the business around those strong relationships, actually what you're saying right here, Dennis, it actually fits into our developmental model goes back to Erickson and other people that say, when we first come into the world, our first developmental task is what? Trust versus mistrust. Is it safe for me here in this relationship? Secondly, we develop an identity of who we are in the family. And third, we start getting busy with life. If it's not safe, we don't have an identity and whatever we're starting to build is never going to be strong on a strong foundation. What you're saying, first and foremost, let's make it safe relationally. Let's get clear about who we are and what our vision is. And then let's get busy doing it. What a great model you've employed. Yeah, and, and you know what? And again, I didn't, this was not conscious. And no. I look back and made, I said I made a lot of stupid mistakes in my life or whatever. But this was a really smart one, like example. So I had been told when I got to this hospital that patient satisfaction was good. And I said, there's no way that the anecdotal or letters I was getting. So I actually bought in a top flight firm to assess it. And we were in the bottom percentile. And I remember telling everybody, that first of all, if you have this much patient dissatisfaction, you'll go out of business. It's like you go in the restaurant, no one likes the waiter or likes the food, it's not going to long exist. And but when I had this employee focus group, I could have, or some people could have said, you know, if you don't get your act together, we don't get these scores up, your job is at risk. And you know, that could have been never came to my mind. So it's like I wasn't conscious, so I just did it. And I, I never forget this. I listen to people say, Tell me how satisfied you are as an employee here. Yeah. And the A, they never heard anybody asking him. And I know time will do it quickly here. But I remember a woman said to me, Mr. Miller, I live 75 miles from here. If I don't take my kid to school or physical therapy, they don't cover the insurance. It's ridiculous. What else? Mr. Miller, I have two jobs. My, my boss here makes me take a day off my job. I said, who's his name? Mr. Miller, I haven't been getting a raise for a while. That's crazy. And I did listen. And that, to me... Again, wasn't conscious, but those are things that helped me transform my life and my career and kind of, you know, the rest is sort of history. I'm glad I did it, but it was just intuitively. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Dennis, we're kind of coming around the bend here and looking to kind of wind down our show. I, I want to, if you would, just speak to our listeners for a second, you know, who may be struggling in their life. And I wonder if you could just leave them with a takeaway message that would be of encouragement for them to see themselves and ways to kind of hang in there during tough life circumstances. Give us a takeaway message, would you? Yeah. The one thing I would say to everybody is this, don't suffer alone. Find a friend, find a mentor, find someone. You go to church with your, in your temple, in your school, in your, 
in your neighborhood, find somebody. Don't go through this alone. It's it's tough enough. But just like I reached out to Father Gantley by accident, that's the, I don't know if that's the right word, but that's one thing I would say is mentors and friends are essential to success. That to me is, is one of the big takeaways. The other one is just, you know, have faith in yourself. Yeah. In spite of all the issues that, you know, the listeners may have here and the listeners I may have, no, don't lose faith in yourself here. And I learned this a long time ago too, which is that the difference between people that are very successful and very unsuccessful, and not because they're intelligent or they've got plenty of resources or there are opportunities, they just have a belief they can make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so my biggest takeaway would be don't suffer alone, find a mentor, talk to a friend, even if you got a call on a hotline. And last bit is that, which for me meant a lot, was I went from having no confidence to having a lot of self-confidence. And self-confidence to me came from every time I made a small achievement in school where I was in college and I actually, you know, would pass the, the test and then get even an A, little testing. I said, I can do this. Yes. So little achievements led to greater self-confidence. And, and then eventually, you know, the, I became a self-confident guy. But those, and lastly, I want to give this one last, this is one of the last things that I remember forget this. So here I am, president and CEO of this ma major medical center, you know, making, relatively speaking, a lot of money, a beautiful home, blah, blah, blah. And when I sort of stepped out of the hospital and I realized that I kind of believed in myself a little bit, that I was Mr. Miller, the president. That's how I was used, Mr. Miller, the president. And now they didn't have the title, didn't have the job. It's like, who am I? Mm -hmm. And I realized who I was goes back to how I treated my wife, how I treated my kids, how I treated my friends. That's who I was and not my, my six-bedroom home, not my fancy car, not the title I had. It was who I was as a person. Mm. And that has led me to be able to transition mm. over the time from hopelessness and failure to happiness and success. I learned how to be happy. Man, I love that. So these 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 takeaways here, and you're saying it throughout our time today. One, don't be defined by your past. Don't 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 kind of have that 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 definition of who you are. You're also in, in, enforcing this idea and encouraging this idea. Never lose that vision of yourself. Cast one, hold it, and keep it in place. Because everything you do when you set the bar like that is going to ideally line up with that and bring healthy people into your life. Don't do life alone. I remember back in the day when they used to teach those in the military to dig a foxhole, they would say, always dig a foxhole for two because you never want to be in battle by yourself. And what you're saying here is don't do life alone and then learn about yourself. And what I love here is that what we what we are is not just what we do or achieve. It's who we are underneath. And what you're saying is my, my sense of self was my treatment of others. In fact, you put a very different ending on this, on what could have been a family legacy of men in your life you became a different life than your father, not to judge him because he had, he had his own demons oh, he did? and yeah, he had sure. his own struggles. So no judgment around that. He was doing the best he could, but it's not condoning what he did, but no, you but became I very I loving. Yeah. And I think that's a huge piece in this. Maybe we can even talk about that someday. We have you back about yeah. the importance of moving through life with forgiveness, yeah. but
what you're talking about, who I was, was my treatment of others and watching how things like organizations or families can grow when that kind of commitment and love is brought into it. You know, think about this. I know what time is short, but whether it's in life or in business or schools or sports, it's amazing how one person, one leader yeah. can change an entire organization. Yeah. And to me, you know, all this stuff about the cultural resonation, blah, 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 blah. To me, it boils down to when people feel listened to, they feel they're cared for, they leave, that they matter, right. they're going to do well. They're That's not right. going to leave the organization. It's when they don't feel cared for, listened to, cared for, they go. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to, I hope I can come back from there, but I enjoy talking to Dr. Taylor. It's been been my my true pleasure and joy, Dennis. You know, I would love uh, people to be able to follow up with you. And uh, I'd love to have you tell us, what are some of the best ways for folks to connect with you? And also maybe your book as well, Mopping Floors from the CEO. Yeah, so the best way is to get go to my website, which is DennisCMiller.com, C as in Charles, or DCM-Associates.com, and see me. My email is Dennis at DCM-Associates.com. Get me on LinkedIn and reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to chat. My book, all of them, but are on, you know, available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and you know, book like up. And so I go to just, you know, normal Google places for online, online book sales. And they're all there. And I'm writing a new book. It's called tentatively right now that a guide to creating a successful nonprofit board, the importance of nonprofit board leadership. And hopefully it's coming out soon. I'm going to trust that that's going to have a pretty relational theme as the, it runs through it. <laughs> <laughs> That'll hopefully, be good. Hopefully, maybe we're going to back and edit it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's going to be great. Dennis, thank you so much for being here today. It's been great to have you. Dr. Tell's my pleasure. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Dennis and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding this episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at tryathq.com slash bht. So thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.